On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for him today, we're going to talk to a researcher from McMaster. They've been studying why the AstraZeneca vaccine has been causing those rare blood clots. He will explain. They think they have found out why. We're going to talk about whether or not right at the top of the priority list for reopening when we come out of COVID fully, whether the arts should be right at the top of that list. An arts instructor, not surprisingly, says yes, but she will back up her views, not just say it. And we are going to be talking about online gaming, e-games. There is now, as some of you will know, but many will not, huge, huge money in e-sports. People playing video games. No kidding. Big money. We'll talk about it. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show for this Thursday, a heavily moistened edition of the Scott Thompson Show, I might add. Scott Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson today. Glad you can be along with us. You can't be outside, so you may as well be here. You may as well be doing something. And we are thrilled that you are here. Sorry, sorry for any Montreal Canadiens fans. It probably hurts. It probably hurts. The boss here at CHML, uh, among the biggest Montreal Canadiens fans in the world. We have not heard from him yet today. We believe that Jeff Story may be lying in a corner in his house in the fetal position and take a month or two to recover from this one. But yes, to the Habs fans out there, sorry about what happened last night to the Tampa Bay Lightning fans. And there are some, and the reason is because there are some great Hamilton connections on this team. Dave Anderchuk, of course, the captain who won the team's first cup and now works with the team. Um, Rob Kitamura, who's a scout from Hamilton, a scout with the Tampa Bay Lightning, has been there for 10 years with them now. A bunch of other. Um, Julian Brisebois, the general manager of the team, was the general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs once upon a time. There's a bunch of other ones. So there, there, there's your intro music, not just the weather outside, also the end of the NHL season, which somehow seems appropriate since it's a million degrees most of this week. Hockey, we, we've probably reached the end of hockey. First up today, though, um, this is a fascinating story. We've heard lots and lots over the last number of months about the stories of blood clots from those who had the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, the numbers of blood clots are not enormous, but the amount of talk about it has been. And this has unquestionably caused great amounts of concern. It's scared some people off the vaccines altogether. So what caused these clots? What led to the clots that led to the panic, that led to the concern, that led to some people not having vaccines? Well, a team from McMaster is closing in on getting a good answer to that. Dr. Ishak Nazi is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and a principal investigator with the, with the McMaster Platelet Immun- Immunology Laboratory. It's, it's hard to say. There's so many things in that title that are so smart that it's hard for me to even to say, but he joins us now. Dr. Nazi, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and that's a generous introduction. Thanks a lot. Well, and every time, say, you know, anytime. Will, go ahead. I will say uh, kudos to the Montreal Canadiens. I'm a huge fan. There you go. So uh, my apologies then. Hopefully we, you know, you're still talking like you're somewhat upbeat, probably because of the stuff you're doing at Mac. It, it, it offsets the stuff that happened with your team. But th- this, before we get into the specifics of the vaccine specifically and the clause from that and everything, um, I'm hoping you can lay just a little groundwork and maybe this is really basic, but generally what causes clots in people? Why do they, why do they happen? 
Yeah, there are s- several different mechanisms that lead to clotting in the body. Um, it's a very highly regulated system. And when one of those elements go you know, off the rails, you will start getting clotting and the clots will appear in different formats in different places leading to strokes, heart attacks, amputations, so on and so forth. So understanding the mechanism of disease is very important for cl- uh, solving clinical, uh, complex clinical situation, situ- situations. And, in, and obviously there can't be somebody more, something more complex than what we're dealing with right now. Can I'm assuming, uh, which is always dangerous, but I'm assuming anybody can get a blood clot. There are not people who are just immune from these things. It could happen to anybody. Yeah, I mean, there are risk factors that are associated with clots in general, um, and one of them being obesity and so on and so forth. Uh, so there, there are ways to reduce the, the, um, the risk of uh, clotting. There are, you know, smoking and different drugs that lead to the different types of clots that we know about. But yes, you're right. And there are obviously genetic factors too. But you're right. Anybody could get a clot. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to pinpoint who would and who wouldn't. So, and again, I understand this is incredibly complicated. I've read the story explaining this a few times, and it, it really is. I mean, you do, it, it helps to have your PhD to understand all this. So, in, in the simplest terms possible, what was it that was in this vaccine, or what were the circumstances within this vaccine and the people who got the clots that led to these circumstances? Yeah, so our study basically used some basic science research. We did molecular biology and biochemistry to try to understand the actual nature of the antibodies that are being produced in response to the vaccine uh, taking part in the clotting event. And what we were surprised to see is that these antibodies were so special in their ability to bundle up this protein that is found in our body, and it creates what's called an immune complex. These immune complexes are, are, are circulating in the body in these individuals, and they actually initiate plate activation. When that happens, it's like a vicious cycle. It's like a forest fire. It's very hard to stop. So a few months, a few uh, a few weeks ago, we published the New England Journal of Medicine paper showing how we can actually stop this vicious cycle, or at least help stop this vicious cycle, to slow it down so other anticoagulants can come in and help uh, stop uh, the clotting. In this paper, in the Nature paper, what we were able to show is how the immune complexes are actually being formed. And this was very informative from a diagnostic and therapeutic perspective, because now we can look at, uh, now we can target this clotting event from two different angles, the plate activating angle and the immune complex formation angle. So there's a lot of science still to be done, but this is at the core of what we do. We identify, we use basic science so we can solve these clinical problems. Now, so this is sitting right before the clotting. Uh, What we were surprised to see is the nature of these antibodies were so specific that it might give us insight into what it is in the vaccine that could lead to the clotting. Uh, Because they are very unusual antibodies. They're They're not the typical type of antibodies that we would expect to see. They're very restricted in the way they react. And this might tell us there might be something Specific in some individuals, they might have specific cells that are responding in this very rare way. Right. And so that was one of the questions was, is this something that is, I mean, is it like an allergy for some people? And I know probably allergy is the wrong word, but I think we all understand what that is, that a few people will have this reaction 
because of something in their system? Or could this theoretically have happened to any of the people who took it? Because anyone is susceptible to this. Yeah, given the rarity of the, the event, um, it's, it looks like it's specific to certain individuals. Given that the antibodies are against a self-protein, this is a protein inside us, uh, and is very specific to the protein. It's not like other factors are interacting. Like we see in this disease we study, it's called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. It, the antibodies in that disease react to a self-protein that is associated with heparin, which is an anticoagulant. In this case, the antibodies very specific to the self-protein. So it might indicate, it might, I say, indicate that this is more of a activation of an autoimmune response that usually doesn't appear because there's no reason for it to appear. It's very rare. It could be that it's an antibody directed against one of our proteins. How, and again, I, I know this is way more complicated than we can possibly explain in the time we have, but how do you test for this in the lab? I mean, are you trying essentially to create a clot to mimic what might have happened here to see what led to it? Yeah, so our, our studies in the lab, we have, that's why the, the, our lab, the, uh, the McMaster Immunology Lab, is the reference center in Canada because we have uh, tests in the lab that can specifically tell you where the antibodies are reacting and how they activate platelets. And the downstream events of platelet activation would be contributing to clot formation. We're one of a handful of labs in the entire world that can do this sort of, that does this sort of uh, work. So that's why we were able to uh, relate this platelet activating event to uh, downstream clotting events. Now, of course, there's more science to be done where we're going, going to go into animal models. We're planning on working with, uh, we have talks with the, um, the, uh, the vaccine producing companies to try to work upstream of where we're at to, and identify what ingredient in the vaccine is actually leading to either the activation mm. of this so-called reaction or why the antibodies are even showing up. Dr. Nazi, one of the concerns that a lot of people have had, and I know you've heard this, everyone listening has heard this, what, uh, the concern has been these vaccines were created much more quickly than most vaccines. At least they got onto the market much more quickly than most vaccines ever would. Could this issue with clotting have been predictable had the testing gone on for longer and the, the, the study of this happened for longer before the vaccines went to market? Uh, you know what? Usually... Clinical trials will take a very long time to, to reach a, a point where you can make decisions on safety, on efficacy, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, that's because the diseases they address aren't that prolific. They're, that's because the money supporting the uh, production of a drug is not as much. Right now, we're dealing with a global pandemic. There's COVID all over the place. You can deploy these drugs all over the place. So despite the fact that they went really quickly, the, the clinical trials were done properly and they did address uh, safety and efficacy. And as you can tell, and everybody can tell, the vaccines work. There's no disputing that part. The rarity of the event exists. It's very rare. It's more rare than a lot of things that we see around us, right? Whether it's contraceptives leading to, um, leading to clotting or other drugs that lead to clotting. So, but it's caught, obviously, worldwide attention because of the enormity of the issue we're dealing with here. Well, and part of the reason I asked the question as well is if you were normally to do clinical trials, um, you might have 
I don't know, hundreds or maybe a few thousand people in that trial. And maybe because the numbers of clots have been so small, nobody would have had a clot here. You're giving it to millions and millions and millions of people. They are essentially in, in some ways your clinical trial. So the chances of finding someone who this would happen to probably are a lot better. 100%. I mean, this is the biggest clinical trial ever in humanity, probably. So um, if problems are going to appear, they're going to appear in the deployment of the vaccines. When the trials were done, they did have a lot of a, a large number of individuals that are involved in the uh, clinical trials. But again, you know, here in Canada, it's about one in 60,000 clotting. Now, we're, we, we parted ways with AstraZeneca for now, at least. Uh, but the rest of the world is using it. And the numbers are one in 60,000. That's a pretty rare number. Uh, even when it started, it was one in 100, one in 200,000. You're, you're, you're rarely going to catch that event in a clinical trial um, mm. that would go on with, like you said, hundreds or a few thousand uh, patients. Is it possible now with what you have discovered and what your group has discovered, is it possible now to test people ahead of time before, if, if AstraZeneca was the one vaccine that was available, can, is there a test to see if you may be the person who has this thing that may lead to the clotting or is that still not available? Is that still not reality? Uh, so, you know, it, it depends on, on what we want to do. Do we, do we want to, what, what, what would, so first of all, we have to identify what the risk factor is here. <clears throat> Say it's a, uh, it's a, it's an activated autoimmune reaction, for instance. It, it depends on the type of test and the cost of the test. And can you actually deploy it worldwide for every person that is going to get AstraZeneca? Mm. If it's a simple biomarker in the body that we know about and we know for sure it's the reason, and it's an easy test, a, a dipstick test or something like that, then it is very possible to do that. But it all depends. And until we actually know the exact ingredient and the exact mechanism, which is something we and others in the world are working on to identify really hopefully soon, uh, until we know that, it's going to be hard to make that decision that we're going to test everybody. It's fascinating stuff that uh, that you've been able to do. Uh, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Dr. Ishak Nazi from McMaster University. Thanks for the time. Thanks for having me. And I'd like to send a shout out to the entire group. They have worked tirelessly throughout the pandemic. Thank you for having me again. Really appreciate it. Let us take a break here on the Scott Thompson Show. Back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Little bonus here. Uh, in the show today, we were also asking people to call in and talk about the Olympics. And we got a call from Cindy Neal Ishoy, who is a six time Olympian, equestrian, uh, equestrian rider, equestrian competitor, a uh, member of the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. We're asking whether the Olympics should be canceled because now Tokyo is under a state of emergency and there's no fans allowed, and on and on and on. Cindy called in. Here's what she had to say. Hi, I I um I want to talk about this. Um, I have competed for Canada in six Olympics. Wow. So wow. um, and I was a member of the team going to <laughs> allegedly going to um uh, the Olympics in Moscow when okay. we when we um boycotted. And so um I you know it's a it's a emotional for me because it's not five years it's your whole life you train. And, um, I mean, five years, of course you train, but for your whole life you're training. But on the other hand, um, I don't particularly want more variants being brought to Canada. Um, I definitely would not choose to compete in, um, in Tokyo. 
I'm very, very sorry for the athletes. I, I know that you, there are a lot of athletes that only can do one Olympics because of the sport that they're in. And I, I, know, what the, I know what you give up. I know what you sacrifice, family, uh, weddings, everything. It's, it's all about preparing and being the best you can be to compete for your country. But um, I, I, for me, it's a hard no. By the way, were you a swimmer by chance or were you a swimmer? No, I couldn't okay. swim in six Olympics. I'm an equestrian. Oh, okay, question. Okay, I was I was trying to do a very quick Google search here to find out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was no. going to say, but uh, so what would you say? Okay, as someone who's been there and had the experience and knows what goes into the preparation as an athlete and the complete. I mean, your life is completely about this for the years leading up to it. What would you say if you were the person that all of a sudden the IOC says or says we can't do this? And Cynthia, you know what? Um, we don't want to tell the athletes. Cynthia, you're the one who has to go tell them. What do you say? I would say that I would just say what I said to you. You know, I understand the commitment. I understand how difficult it is. I understand, like, um, I mean, it, it was really hard for me. I was young in 1980, and um, I, it was very hard for me because uh, at that time they were selling the, the Russian cars, Lada, in, Lada's in Canada. So there was no financial, like, it was just, it was about a, a war in Afghanistan, um, and uh, the Americans uh, started, you know, started the boycott and Canada followed along. I'm not sure that has anything to do with Olympians and, uh, because the Olympics are supposed to be about athletes together in world peace. But that's one of the reasons for the Olympics. And so that it was a very difficult decision. Well, I had no decision, but I, I would have thought that was a much more dis- difficult decision than now. I totally agree with you with all the money. It shouldn't be about money. It should be about human life. And so I, I would, I mean, I know, I know there's another equestrian that has, has not gone, one of our top show jumpers, uh, for all these reasons. It, it wouldn't be an Olympics, but part of the Olympic family and part of the Olympic experience is interacting with other athletes, learning about different training methods mm-hmm. and, and, if, and learning, you know, it's, it's a life experience about, you learn about the country. I, I mean, I'm, I've been so lucky to go to so many different countries. I mean, l- luckily I was on the, uh, the, the lead rider on the, on the uh, bronze medal for Canada in, um, in Seoul. And, um, I mean, it wouldn't have been an Olympics without seeing the other riders. I got to meet um, Ella Morris, the gold medalist in canoeing from, um, from Los Angeles. So, I mean, to meet these people... And hear their story and their sacrifices is an amazing experience. And I'm very, I would be very sorry telling the younger athletes. Um, but we are in a world pandemic. And Tokyo, uh, Tokyo in particular, Japan, is behind the eight ball in their vaccinations. And um, I don't know, like, I, I just have to say, from an ethical point of view, I would not, I would, if I was trying out for the team, I would not want to compete. The, the the worst part, and Cynthia, I'll let you, Cynthia, I'll let you go. But the, the worst issue here is what in the world? Ha- what would happen if there was a horrible situation? What what if an right. athlete? And 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 you know, look for the long term uh, survival, thriving, whatever for the for the future of the Olympics. I don't know how the IOC 
possibly spins this or defends itself if an athlete were to go there and get horribly ill or you know i know that that covid is not something that is primarily taking out young people but it can we know that it can and even young healthy people um i I have no idea what the future of the olympics would be if that were to happen to somebody when it's preventable and the ioc is then being asked questions of why did you insist on going ahead I absolutely agree with you, completely agree with you. And that, that would be my question on ethics. And um, I mean, what, what, how horrible would it be if I brought that home to my family and I didn't get that sick? And the other thing is when you're training at, in peak performance, your, um, your immune system is somewhat stressed already. So, uh, and that's, pe- that's people, like athletes know that. And I mean, as I said, I would not want to be the one that would tell those athletes it, it, it's, to them tragic because I, I know, I know what it takes to compete at that level. And if I know firsthand what it takes, I wasn't just an observer. I was part of teams and I just am like, I'm sorry, but I have to say the, the welfare of humans and the welfare, the Japanese pulled, what did they say? The 97% don't, don't want to hold the Olympics because they're worried yeah, about this, yeah. about, about COVID. I mean, I have done my research on it. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. I, well, I, I, it, it's hard. Yeah. And, and you know what, back in Vancouver, people will remember this and we got to run in a second here. People will remember that per, right the day or two before the Olympics open in Vancouver, there was a loser from, uh, Lithuania or Latvia or somewhere like that who died. If people remember when they, he crashed on the course during yeah. a training run and that was terrible. But most people said it was really horrible, but unavoidable. It's not something that you could really lay blame. This, if something terrible happens, I don't know that you're going to be able to say it was unavoidable or we should not have been able to prevent this. And that's going to be a really tough thing for the IOC to get around. And and again, I, that's that's the fear that we're going to be living in. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But anyway. I pray not. Uh, I really do. We pray not for sure. Uh, by the way, I, I, I had, it took me a second, but I do know who I'm talking to now. And I should point out that, uh, who we are talking to is not only a six time Olympian, but also a member of the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, uh, and one of the great riders. Uh, can I, can I give your name or is that okay? That's, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a Cindy Nealishoy who, uh, correct. That's who I'm talking to. Yep. That's right. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I figured it out. It took me a second, but I did figure it out. And listen, I, I really appreciate you calling in and lending your, uh, your thoughts on this because um, there's not too many people who have been to six Olympics who can offer their perspective the way you did. Thanks for calling. Thank you very much. There's a really interesting article in the conversation. It's an online publication with some really interesting things that land on there. And, and one of the pieces that's up there right now is under the headline theater, live music and other performing arts should be a priority in COVID-19 reopening plans. Hmm. You agree with that? I think a lot of people will. I think some people will say, well, wait, why should that be a priority? But I think a lot of others will say, absolutely. Uh, the author of the piece is Jan Cleveland, who's the program coordinator of drama studies at Carleton University, who joins us now. Jan, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Nice to uh, speak to you. Thanks for inviting me in. Well, thrilled to have you here. And I'll, let me start by being the, the, uh, the cynic or whatever else, because there's going to be people, of course, who hear your job title and go, well, of course she wants this to be a priority. <laughs> so why is it more than that, Jen? Why is it more than just someone who works in drama saying, I want my field to be back opened again? Yeah, no, I can understand people saying that. And there's a really good reason for me to say that, not just because of my job, 
but because I have been watching myself, my friends, my students navigating this, what, landmine, minefield for the last year and a half trying to make our way through. And our mental health has taken a huge hit. So I went and checked out things with the uh, OECD, the economists. And the economists are saying, and I'm not making this up, the economists are saying that performing arts are really crucial to the mental health of people. It, it's it, in part, it's a way of coming together. It's part, it's, humans are social creatures. We need each other in three dimensions, particularly in the performing arts, because they te- we tell our stories through those performing arts, whether it's music or drama or dance or whatever it is. We come together and we have an experience of our humanity together. And hmm. that has not been happening. There's been a lot of attempts to do online versions, and some have been more successful than others. And I, I applaud the people who have made those attempts. It's not the same. A lot of places are now trying to come back in a variety of ways. So uh, Stratford Festival, for example, is going to be doing a whole series of outdoor performance events to the best of their ability. They're, they're putting all kinds of money into creating huge tents where people can be outdoors but still socially distancing and, and all of that. And that's great because we all know that this is something that we need as humans, as social creatures. And I think that's the biggest argument for it. So we also need to pay those people who work in the arts. The arts is a huge um, economy in and of itself, by the way. It's not mm-hmm. just the argument that, oh, well, it's just, it's just those arts, those pesky arts. The arts is a several billion dollar industry, even in Canada. So if you take that away, you are taking money out of the economy that is not going to rapidly be replaced. We must support it while the arts get back on their feet so that we can do that that social interaction that we all so desperately need. Yeah, and and it's answer. not... It's not just Stratford. I mean, obviously around no. here, we, I heard the other day that the Boris Brought Music Festival is having drive-in concerts in Ancaster uh, later this month yes. because they have to do it outside. So yeah, it, it sure is. But let me go, th- you said a bunch of things there and I want to sort of work mm-hmm. through a number of them. Um, you mentioned that different things have been done online. Certainly during the pandemic, while we've had lots of time in the house, some people have actually finished Netflix. I mean, they've got through everything or, you know, there are TV channels. I stumbled on a channel on my TV that I didn't even know I had, which is uh, classical concerts. You can sit and watch entire. So we've had the opportunity to be exposed to art during this time. Why is art over our TV or art over our radio or art on iPods or whatever. Why is iPhones, why is that not Mm -hmm. equal to live art? It is a great supplement. It is not a replacement. I'm on holiday right now. Let me just give you this example. This is the first time I have been out of Ottawa in two years, and I can't tell you how excited I am about that. (laughs) I'm in Toronto visiting other friends. We're all double-vaxxed so we can finally get together. And I have, I've spoken on Zoom with them. I've spoken on the phone with them. We've been in contact. It's not like I haven't had any contact. But I'll tell you, I pulled into the driveway, got out of the car. We looked at each other and went, oh, my God, it's three-dimensional. There's, the whole, there's all of your senses engaged with that. The sense of smell, the sense of hearing, the sense of sight, the touch. I can hug my friends because they have been double-vaxxed and so have I. We, we, we're looking at, you know, we, we still want to 
observe protocols when we're out in public, absolutely. I'm not talking about randomly taking chances and going, who cares? Nobody's saying that. But it's it's not the same thing when I am in person. I, I teach. This fall, I'm going to be back teaching in a classroom. Teaching in a classroom, let me tell you, is a very different experience from teaching online. Students don't like to be, by and large, online. It's not the full, rich experience that they get in person. It's the same thing with the arts. And because the arts are telling our stories, and we are involved in those stories, it's that much more... The, the, you know, the level just reaches a height that you cannot reach mm. on a screen which is two-dimensional. There's some you, very, very good stuff that has come down, and I'm so glad that people have been exposed to new forms of art that maybe they wouldn't have seen before. Maybe they've watched an opera for the first time and thought, wow, this is actually kind of cool. Great. Now I hope that you will go out and see a live opera when that's possible again. You said something, you said something very uh, interesting a second ago that I, that you said, you know, students don't love being online. There's a real irony in that, isn't there? Because this generation of students always choose to go online, but now that they have to go online, they want to get offline. Um, I don't know if that's the grass is always greener syndrome, or if that's just a revelation to many of them that, hey, maybe, maybe I should put my phone down for a few moments because there's a world out there. But I mean, you write in this piece and I think it's a great line that arts and the human psyche are connected, which, you know, yeah. it's pretty deep, but it's probably pretty true. I think it's absolutely true. And I'm going to argue with you a little bit that students don't want to, you know, be in per- that they just want to be online. Yeah, they want to be online. They want to be connected to their friends. They want, you know, to know all the things that are going on on social media. But they don't want to give up the in-person. At the same- they don't want it to be an either-or situation. This last year has, has been hard on them very hard on them. I have watched the mental health issues go right up through the roof, just among the uh, students mm. that I've, I've dealt with personally. They're having a really rough go. And, and so are a lot of their professors, and they don't realize that. It's been hard for all of us. And we need to come together. And, I, I mean, the, econ- the economists will bear out the fact that this is an economy that contributes to the overall economy of the country but it also we need to put back into that economy in order to grow it to begin with like any economy and the thing that we all really 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 need to remember is the economy when we keep talking about well we've got to you know support the economy who is the economy the economy is people and people are telling stories and we need to tell stories we need to touch base with our humanity and with other people and interact to make ourselves better people. And we can't do that in isolation on a Zoom call or watching Netflix, as much fun as some of that stuff is. We obviously, we obviously feel things through the arts. I mean, that's kind of the point of going to the arts Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, it's an interactive and an emotional thing. It stirs something. Does that make us healthier? Does it automatically make us healthier to have that? I think it does actually. I think it, it creates an experience that allows us to expand our own sense of who we are. Uh, one of the things is it, it gives us perspective. I might not know what it's like to live in, let's pick a place that I've never been to, um, the Arctic. I haven't been to the Arctic, but I can go and see a performance 
that is done by an indigenous troop that's coming from um, an Inuk community. And I'm going to have a sense of, oh, I understand what these people are talking about. They're having an experience that is similar to mine. It's different in their own way. But hey, now I have a perspective that is broadened and opened. They are not completely foreign to me. And that makes us, that gives us a possibility and, a, and an opportunity to have a bigger, richer experience of just being alive. Okay, what about, now we know that there are many forms of art that are going to tickle our eyes or tickle our ears and make us feel really good and we're really happy. But art is also at times going to infuriate us and challenge us and make us not so happy. Does that still have a positive psychological impact on us? Absolutely. It encourages a conversation. If we just agree with each other all the time, that's not a conversation. That is, that's just us making ourselves feel better. Art does many things. It, per- it, it, it perplexes us sometimes. It proposes new ideas that maybe we haven't thought of before. It gives us that, that chance to say, hey, to the person next to you, I don't understand what's going on here because this thing. Let's talk about this issue. I, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. Well, your world gets bigger by that, even if it makes you angry. I don't go and see performances just because I'm going to like them. Sometimes I don't like them. But they always make me think about something. And that is crucial to to our sense of well-being, to our sense of who we are, even if they challenge us. And sometimes, especially if they challenge us, that's where we have the opportunity for growth. When we talk about making it a priority to bring performances and to bring art back, Mm -hmm. um, art often reflects life. That's where artists are often inspired from something in their experience. Um, Does that mean that we are in the next little while as the art world gets reopened and performance begins again, are we about to be swamped with tons of plays and movies and books and (laughs) poems and everything else about COVID? I hope so. But I really? hope so in ways, yeah, I do. Because this is, you know, do you want to go back into this situation again? I don't. And the only way I think that we can prevent ourselves from returning to exactly this place is to think about how we got here and what we could do differently. And that's often going to come out in story. And story is done through performance. I don't necessarily want to see all the next year plays about COVID, you know, the, you know, the COVID days. Yeah, fine. Some of that is fine. I also want to see some other things. But it is Every, part yeah. of our human experience for the entire globe at the moment. So those are going to be stories that we want to tell. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I, there are different, I, I mean, I try to think back about what are some of those things that really stand out that are huge ones. And I mean, obviously there's been a ton of movies and TV shows about, for example, the fifties, um, which was, and, and generally those are seen as happy. I mean, I was gonna say happy days. That's that literally, that's one of the TV shows about it. But, but then there's the things like, there's a ton of stuff about the Vietnam war, which is very negative. And yet you're right. I mean, we do watch it. I just, the, the one thing that I think is different is that with both of those things, 
there was a significant time gap between the time that happened and the time we began to study it, reflect on it, and re-immerse ourselves in it. I don't know if suddenly we turn on the radio in six months and half the songs are pandemic songs, if we're really ready to wallow in that yet, or if we need a break before that becomes our artistic reality. I do suspect we do need a break. We need to hear more than just those stories, but I think we also need to hear those stories. And I do, I agree with you. I think that the really intense examination, the stories that really examine how did we get here to begin with, are not going to take place until we've had a chance to step back a little bit farther and really look and go, well, you know, for all the people who say, I can't wait to get back to normal, my response is, I think normal brought us here. I, I'm pretty sure we can do better, and I think we need to go slowly and make that the achievement we aim for. And our stories are going to help us get there. On a, on, a more, on, a, on a very practical financial side of things, I know mm-hmm. that during the pandemic there have been grants announced by various forms of government to help art yeah. galleries and help artists and everything else. Have they worked? Have they kept artists and places that provide art, have they largely kept them afloat or are we going to come back out of this and reopen everything and find a lot of them gone? I think we're going to find a lot of the smaller ones gone. Um, Artists are just like the rest of us. They have rent to pay, mortgages to pay, bills to pay. And if you haven't got any money coming in or enough money coming in, you have to go and do something else. I I do know personally some uh, theater artists who have just backed off and said, well, I'm just going to do this other thing because I can make money at it and I have a family. And I understand that. Some of the bigger organizations like Stratford, like the NAC, like the, um, the electric company in Vancouver, all across the country, have really big subscriber bases. Lots of people have been donating towards those and trying to help keep those afloat. Governments have also been been trying to, you know, pre- present certain Oh, ways of funding that will help keep things going. It can't stop just because the doors open again, because it's going to be a long time before we actually come back to where everybody has enough to keep the place open. They can't open fully for a while. We're all going to still be socially distancing. So right now, for example... Uh, churches and places like that will allow indoor activity at 25% of capacity. Well, eventually that's going to happen for theaters and, and music venues and, and those sorts of places. Well, 25% of your venue is not going to pay your bills. We're still going to have to support until there's a richer, more robust economy that can stand on its own because it's worth it to us and we know that now. Yeah, I, I wonder, the, the one thing I wonder, and you just alluded to it, is, I mean, there's a lot of artists who were barely getting by to begin with. Um, you all of a sudden now have to put food on your table. Yeah. You say, okay, I've got to, I'm going to go try something else. And all of a sudden now you think, you know, I've actually, it's kind of nice to have some money, <laughs> to have some stability. Yeah. And I wonder how many of them automatically flock back to that previous life as a suffering, not suffering, but a, a scuffing starving artist and how many say I, I've kind of become a little comfortable with this and, I, and I'm okay with this new world this new well, life frankly, 
if if nothing else comes out of this pandemic but this, I would be quite happy. If we can come to a point where government and the mainstream and the rest of us are in support and say, wait a minute, we realize how important the arts and the performing arts are to us, we will put more support into that. Maybe there is something like a universal basic income that allows artists to, while they're building a name, to not starve to death, to not be a starving artist. If that, if we get there through this pandemic, through this experience, I would be totally happy with that and say, well, we've learned something. We've learned what's really important to us as a culture, and we, we need to support our artists because... <laughs> In the future, let's say it's a thousand years from now and people are coming through and going, what did these people do? How did they live? It is not going to be through, it, it's going to be through evidence of the arts that, we, that our, our story and our legacy is going to be told. Archaeologists find out how cultures live through their pottery, through their paintings, through their, you know, all of that kind of stuff that's in museums, right? Yeah, so no, it's uh, it's it's to tell us that. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, Jan Cleveland, I wish we had more time, but we don't, unfortunately. But really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks a lot, Scott. It was great to talk to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've known about this for a while, and yet it still blows my mind because we we often still stereotype gamers. Um, a lot of times as, you know, young guys who live in their mom's basement and do nothing but play Call of Duty all day and eat Doritos. Um, and, you know, and it's, in some cases that may be true, but, but not always, but not always. It is amazing. But the top 10 professional gamers in the world, there are professional gamers, there's lots of them. The top 10 in the world combined to earn over $50 million in prize money per year. American, 50 million. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Which which leads me to believe that anybody who makes fun or mocks or looks down on gamers may be missing the point. Maybe we should all be racing out to get ourselves a PlayStation or an Xbox and trying to get really good because I know that I'm not making the kind of money gamers are. Now, of course, I can't play those games very well. The games that I can play, I don't know that they have world competitions for them. I want to bring in Dr. Christopher Alexander. He is a professor at the Ryerson Radio Television Arts School of Media, known as the Video Games Prof. What a great name. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Alexander, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. It's an honor to be here. Well, look, if you're going to have a nickname and you're a professor, better to be the Video Games Prof than the you know, I don't know, something like really dry and the, the intestinal bacterium, <laughs> whatever, you know, like, come on, the video games prof is the guy everybody wants to talk to at school. Um, this, look, I, I understand, you understand, many people listening will know that there has been money, that this has gone professional, that people do this, but even so, that's an astonishing amount of money for video gamers, is it not? Uh, it is, but, you know, culturally to the video game sphere, it's, it's it's normal, right? When we're looking at these top 10 players, generally we're looking this particular report focuses on Dota 2 players. And uh, many are unaware of this, but the prize pools, only 1.6 million of the initial prize pool are, is donated by Valve, the company behind Dota 2. And so what you're seeing is in 2014, the prize pool was 9 million, over 9 million. 
2015, over 16 million. 2016, over 19 million. 2017 and 2018, over 23 million. 2019, over 32 million. And 2020, over 40 million. And a lot of that comes from the players themselves, again, community, coming to, they're buying battle passes, and a portion of that money goes into the prize pool. So what you're seeing is a specific ecosystem to Dota 2, where you have the fans lifting up their players, playing alongside them, watching them, even contributing to this money that you're seeing there. All right. First of all, for, for those who don't follow this, and I'm guessing there's still a lot who don't, uh, explain Dota 2. What are they playing? What, where are they making their money? Doing what? Oh, they're playing a video game. Oh, yeah. So how do I explain it? Uh, boy. Well, I think of it in terms of football. Uh, you've got a, um overarching map where players are competing against each other and individual players take on individual roles. But it's sort of a, a tactical team sport, the best way to boil it down. You know, you have your top players uh, there. I don't know if that boils it down enough. No, it's an, it's a, it's an adventure strategy um, you know, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe it too. I mean, sort of, uh, I don't know, like capture the flag elements along with call of duty elements along. There's a lot of different pieces, but it's an adventure game that they're playing. It's not a sports game or something. It's an adventure thing. Yeah. It's a multiplayer online battle arena. So also known as a MOBA. So people are playing okay. together. These people, these guys, and is it mostly guys who are in the top 10? Is it because theoretically there would be no gender no reason to have different gender categories in this, but is it mostly guys who are in the top 10? Uh, yes, I believe so. Uh, according to the numbers here. Yep. So do they have like to the average person to this, to the, in to the diehard gamers, they would know who these people are. Do outside of the diehard gaming community, do they have a public persona or are they still, is it still not there yet as far as, people knowing who they are if you're not really into it well yeah i guess it would be comparable to other sports um so if you're not necessarily connected to the community either through play or through fandom it's unlikely that you would recognize them walking down the street um but yeah so it would have that if you're connected to the community most likely you would know who they are and there is, and it's clear, there is a massive community for this because the companies and the advertisers are not giving this kind of prize money unless there's a reason, unless there's a payoff, which is eyeballs, which is, it says something about just how big the audience for this is. It does indeed. But as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the prize pool for Dota 2, from which these top 10 players are, is contributed by the community. So again, advertisers can look at that as a model and it varies across different esports, right? So uh, the model here that we're looking at is community and fan supported. And again, 1.6 million prize pool contributed by Valve. All right. I understand. Um, I'm guessing anyway, that many people listening right now are going to say, well, why would you watch other people play a video game? Uh, so why, why is the audience there? And that may be just a really weird question to ask, but what is it about watching this that drives the audience? Because I get playing it, yep. but what about the audience? Why are they there? Well, what's brilliant about that and what differs this from traditional sport is the distance between picking up a controller slash kicking a football across a giant field is shorter. I can look at a play in Dota 2 listen to the commentary you know what i'm going to try that out but think about that long bomb that you see in football tossing across the field oh my goodness i'm going to train my arm i'm going to train so 
part of the draw is you can see yourself as part of the narrative via whoever you're watching. I want to be like them. I can be like them. Like them. Let me install. Even the amount of time it would take to go out and find and purchase a football would be longer than the download time for many of these esports types. Huh. Yeah, and I know even as I ask the question, I understand some people are saying, well, you're asking why would people watch something that they could do? How is that any different from people watching sports? Isn't that exactly. watching something that someone else could do? And I guess, you know, I guess I'm answering my own question. It kind of is. It just... It seems different. And the reason I think it seems different, and maybe I'm answering my own question again, is when I watch Tom Brady or I watch the Stanley Cup finals, um, there is no thought in my mind that I am able to compete at that level. There's zero (laughs) chance. Whereas this, if you're learning it, theoretically, you could. Yes, absolutely. And we have the same uh, markup of population who actually compete at the top tier level, about 1%. And so that's, that's, you're, you're really highlighting the critical thing there. The, the distance to get there in some ways is shorter or participate in communities and sub-communities that are in service or enjoy this particular title or any title in the esports realm or video games in general. Is this a purely democratic um, system? Is the, is the way to get there? I mean, look, many people would understand how golf works in the professional thing. You work your way up from different levels and you get your card to go to the next level and then you work up and eventually if you're good enough you get to the pga tour is that the same kind of thing here you work your way up through various tournaments and things until you could get to play on this big stage that's correct and some titles they reset those rankings at the beginning of each year so you may have been the top last year but everybody's starting from the beginning and you work your way up again Oh, so you yeah. don't even get to, I mean, so, so Wayne Gretzky would have had to start from the beginning again, if this was the case. And, and he's pretty good. He would have made it back, but you, <laughs> you, you don't get a free pass for just being good the year before or always good. You have to consistently be good. Just like you do in professional sport. Like you, because you won the championship one year, you could get traded. And then that team, like we've seen it happen before. It's the same thing in these organized uh, electronic sports. The, yeah. The difference is though, that sometimes athletes, uh, I, I think that probably esports players will call themselves athletes, but the traditional athletes, you may go into a slump or something, but you're still going to be there. They're going to cut you some some slack time to figure it out. Where here, if if you aren't great all the time, apparently you disappear. Well, I don't know if you disappear per se, but like a lot of your metrics are still stored on servers. A lot of your performance when you're playing in the off season, people can watch your replays. You'll you'll be watching your own replays. You can see where you've lost over and over and over again. And there are patches about, again, the difference between a lot of esports and traditional, we're not changing the shape of the football, but oftentimes there are patches in games that actually shift the dynamics of the games themselves. So there's a lot of varying factors in there that, of course, refresh the pool for new players and refresh it as well for seasoned players. One of the amazing things about this, because even if, you're, even if people are listening again, saying, okay, well, you know, so... That's how people make it. This is bigger than that. I, I did a thing on on the show, I don't know, a couple of years ago, um, when universities in the States began offering scholarships for esports. I mean, this is now, you can go to play football or basketball or soccer or whatever at an NCAA school, but you can go as an esport athlete on a scholarship. That's absolutely accurate. And those are some of the frameworks that part of my job as a video games professor start to institute in post-secondary education. So, yeah. Absolutely. What about it's, here? What about here? Because that's, that's an American thing right now. There, there's no Canadian school that has that yet, is there? Uh, 
Official pathways, I'm not sure. I know that I'm working on those right now at Ryerson U University, and there were previous infrastructure established at my former institution, Humber College. Um, so I, I'm not sure right now outside of those two institutions. But there's no reason. This is one of the other things that's really interesting about this. Um, McMaster here in Hamilton uh, has traditionally had a very, very good football team, but they're not going to go play Ohio State because they were on, we're talking about apples and oranges, and it's a completely different thing. There's no reason that any Canadian university could not create a team that could be entirely competitive with any other team anywhere else in the world, right? Yeah, absolutely accurate. In fact, Canada has more top skilled players per capita than I think any other part in the world. And we have a population of California, one state. So, so yeah, we, we can and should be competing at that scale, in my view, anyway. One of the things, though, traditionally, these events, and, you know, it's amazing. People can go online and watch some of these, and, you know, like they fill arenas with people watching this, and the players are there live in person. Has 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 that changed with COVID? Has, has, because one of the things that might be a, a bar, an obstacle to having that kind of thing is that you have to be there in person. Is there any reason to think that this sport could not, this competition couldn't change so you could just do it from wherever you are in the world? Well, so one of the things that has uh, not been impacted as much is both video game playing, which is up 75% as of March 20th of last year, but also esports. Many of the tournaments have still been held yet online and they're still functioning. Price pools are still growing. Players are still playing together remotely, off-site, on-site. So one could argue that this the sport that keeps on giving. Well, th this would, theoretically, this would dramatically increase your player pool, would it not? If you don't have to pay to go to some event somewhere and you may not have the money or you may come from an impoverished country or whatever else, if you can do this from home, literally anybody in the world could be good at this and, and, and make it. Accurate. But those conversations start to delve into who has access to reliable Wi-Fi, internet. And when you look at of course. the statistics of where the top players come from, you'll see it's where the internet speeds are often faster than in other places. So of theoretically, yes, it's possible, but bandwidth will likely be an issue. Do you anticipate the day when we are going to turn on our broadcast television, our regular TV that's hanging on the wall on a Saturday afternoon. And as you flip through, there's going to be baseball on one channel and golf on one channel and esports as a regular thing all the time on another. Well, that's been happening in South Korea for over a decade. That's why we're we've, at Ryerson, we're working with a company in Ben Global who has its roots in South Korea. And this is a normal thing there. So yeah, I do envision a day because it is in parts of other parts of the world. And we, and truly, as I'm saying that, we have seen it here uh, back again when COVID got going. And I think it was, was it NASCAR or was it IndyCar when they couldn't run? Many of the professional drivers were having like serious competitions with, with online stuff from their homes. Yes, accurate. Being, accurate. being broadcast on TV. Yes, brilliant. And, and I think what you're seeing is this happened uh, many years ago with uh, F1 racers where you were able to compete in real time from the comfort of your home. They superimposed you alongside the riders. And if you did fairly well, I think you got a chance to meet them. But to me, I see this as a constant thing. Wouldn't it be great to race next to your favorite racer? It, like these things will draw fans closer to the people they care about, love, enjoy. And it, it crafts stronger communities, in my view. You know who's going to hate that? The yeah. real racers, when all of a sudden some kid named Bucky, who's 12 in his mom's basement, beats an F1 <laughs> racer in an F1 race. The really? F1 guys are going to go, okay, enough of that already. I don't need to deal with that crap anymore. 
Well, well, it actually brings up an inc- incredible conversation about the dynamics in play and skill and talent at what level. So save GeForce, a lot of these rigs now are doing pretty much the same because the same computer physics that are inside of most of these games that were, uh, or actually the real cars, which are increasingly becoming computer op- operated. So, um, yeah, I don't know if they're going to get upset because if you think about it in traditional sport, for example, if... Um, LeBron James was able to play as LeBron James in the offseason and got beat by the top, I don't know, 13 or 14-year-old. That's an incredible chance to meet and connect and what it could do for the entire sport, both yeah, digital yeah. and analog, you know? And now, and that's probably, and not to criticize, that's probably not the best comparison because what LeBron James does physically, if you did it in real life, would be different. But racing is very, I mean, there, there's a lot of similarities that it could be close enough that you could say, you know, that's a real, that's a real competition. Absolutely. And the suggestion I gave about basketball was exactly that. Like where LeBron James already has a huge following. How many people would watch him lose on Twitch? <laughs> that's course, true. You know what I'm so, so no, you're absolutely right about the physics and the, and the, and the car racing and the driving. It makes good sense. We, we got to go, but are there, there are other, th- I mean, it's not just Dota too, as you say, there's racing, there's all the, how, how many different categories right now are there out there? Oh boy. Like tons? Well, yeah, there are. Uh, the, the top four ones, Dota 2, Counter-Strike, Global Offensive, First Person Shooter, Fortnite, number three, and then League of Legends. Uh, so, you know, th- these, and these are just for prize money. And then after that, you have StarCraft 2. But um, there are lots. There's a farm simulator that started up as a joke, and there's now an eSports for that, actually doing farming. So <laughs> there's, there's new- <laughs> I can't make this stuff up. I, you got to check it out. Uh, these, these are the communities that can exist for anybody. Just go out there and take a look. Based on my high school years, if they open up a league for Space Invaders or Donkey Kong, I'm in. Listen, the first Space Invaders tournament was in 1980, put on by Atari, and Rebecca Hyman was the first winner. Championship. This was, this was, this was in 1980. So, yeah, you could still come back. There's a chance. You probably have to I, I will. I will begin working out immediately, flexing my Space Invader thumb muscles and getting all the tendons and ligaments loosened up to be able to play. Uh, it, look, it's it's a fascinating one, and as I say, it's it's um it, it's something I don't think a lot of people, th- those who know it for sure, know it and are saying, "Why are you talking about it?" Everybody knows this. No, they don't all know this, and I think a lot of people are going, "I I, I had no idea there was." We know it's going on, but didn't know there was this much money in it at yeah. this point, yeah. and. And growing and, and absolutely, I would say growing to the point where I don't know if it's ever going to really pass sports, but you know, they're, they're going to be making all the money they need. I think, especially when you include endorsements as well. Uh, listen, we got to run. I wish we had a lot more time, but uh, Dr. Christopher <laughs> Alexander, the video games prof. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you kindly. You take good care. I want to bring in John Matisse, who's the national hockey writer for the score who joins us now. John, how are you today? How's it going, Scott? Excellent. How are you doing, John? I'm pretty well. Just coming off uh, the cup final here. Things are going to get pretty intense in, in July with two drafts and, and free agency. So resting up today compared to last night. Well, you're resting up. How are Montreal Canadiens fans feeling today? And uh, I mean, obviously that sounds like a stupid question. Let me just preface. I know they're disappointed but if you're a Montreal Canadiens fan, do you look at what happened this spring and summer and say, man, that, this is great. We are set up for the future. We're going to be back here next year and next year it's ours. Or do you look and go, boy, oh boy, that was our one shot at this thing. I don't know if I look at it either of those ways and I'll 
kind of break it down. Like, I don't think that they will be able to re- repeat what they did this year, and that's not a slight against what they've built there or that they're a poor hockey team. I just think that everything kind of went perfectly for them in the first three rounds, and for that to happen again, especially in the normal divisions, uh, would be pretty extreme. They're going to be up against Tampa, Boston, Toronto, um, and it's going to be Florida in that division. So that that'll that that's one part of it. And then another part is, I think that they can still look at what happened this spring and summer and, and be pretty pretty happy. I mean, there's there's been some rough times there, especially when you think about you know their search for number one center for a long time. Well, it looks like they got it with Nick Suzuki or you know, Shea Weber and Carey Price aging. And it's seeming like, oh, you know, we're going to, we're not going to be able to go on a deep run here. Well, you got your, your deep run. So in the, in the short term, I think you, you bask in what just happened, even though the cup final was pretty anticlimactic, if we're going to be, uh, if we're going to be honest here, aside from obviously winning one game, but it wasn't much of a series. Um, aside from that, if you can take a step back and, and enjoy what happened, especially in a pandemic and uh, sort of, just, I guess, reflect on the fact that they were the 18th best team in the regular season and they got into the playoffs and then they really did some damage on a, you know, a few good teams, especially Vegas. So there's, there's more hope certainly than there was a couple months ago. I guess that's, that's a good way to put it too, where, you know, there, there's a lot of players on that team that really, you know, made a name for themselves and, and proved that they can play some really good hockey in the playoffs. It's just a matter of, getting back to the playoffs next year when things go back to normal and Mm. you your roster is probably better suited for playoff success than regular season success so that's kind of difficult because you got to do the regular season first right so yeah it's i mean overall i think Habs fans should be should be pretty pleased though uh, you know considering where their team was uh let's just say i don't know six months ago yeah, and, and you know what? It's, it's, look, it's fantastic to be a playoff team, which Montreal showed they could play in the playoffs. But as you say, you got to get there. And that division, that Atlantic division next year, as you say, Tampa, Boston, Toronto, Florida, Ottawa, which is improving, Buffalo, which can't possibly be as bad as it was again, <laughs> I don't think. Um, you know, there's no guarantee by any stretch Montreal makes the playoffs next year, let alone. So you can be built for the playoffs, but as you say, you got to get there. Yeah, and that really dovetails well with talking about the lightning where they're the rare team that is built for the regular season and built for the playoffs because they can play any style. Yep. They have superstars at every position. They have really good support players and they have those sort of bit players that, that tend to come in handy in the playoffs and they can turn and sort of manipulate, uh, you know, their, their playing style and they can look at the opponent in the eye and go, okay, you want to play this way? Well, we're going to play this way as well. And we're also going to beat you. So they're really interesting in that sense where um, there aren't, I don't think there's too many teams around the league that are like that, uh, where you can no. honestly state that in, you know for sure that they're going to have a really strong regular season, probably finish you know, in the top five in the league in points, and then be just a, a, you know, a, a real force in the playoffs. Because there's a lot of teams, like, let's say Vegas, for example, they've had really strong uh, regular seasons. They've gone far in the playoffs, but they haven't kind of gotten over the hump because they don't seem to have this finishing ability that you do need in the playoffs. Like that was part of the success with the Habs, right? They would go on these odd man rushes and they'd finish. It would be, they're getting, you know, outshot 20 to 10 and they go back for that 11th shot and it's a two on one and the puck's in the back of the net. That happened a lot this, 
this postseason. Is that replica? 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 <laughs> Are you able to do that? Again? Repeatable. <laughs> um, yeah. the, I think you can with the, the type of players that they have, but it's also there's some luck there, right? So then with with Vegas, not to go too much on a tangent, but I think that they're more built for regular season success at this point. So they've got to decide, okay, can we tweak here? Can we tweak uh, there and, and figure out how we can start winning in the playoffs? And obviously you can always circle back to the Leafs on, on that note too. So um, well, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's a testament though to the Lightning and what they've built there and how sort of bulletproof their team is um, for any scenario. If I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan right now, I'm probably sending Mark Bergevin a, a, a clipping from 1990, whatever it was, the year the Leafs have shocked everybody after the Gilmore trade. And then Cliff Fletcher decided, you know what, we're almost there. We better, we better go for it. And, and it was, you know, I'm not saying the Leafs run that year was a fluke, but, you know, you need good bounces and you need things to go your way. And we saw you trade away the future, and then if it doesn't work, you're kind of done. I, I I think Canadians fans should be concerned that Mark Bergevin looks at the warts of his team, or doesn't look at the warts of his team from the regular season, just looks at the playoffs and goes, we're almost there. And I'm not sure they are really almost there unless things go perfectly for them. And if you decide to go all in right now, I, I'm not sure that's the play for him. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what his job security is like, because Let's face it, he deserves some sort of credit for what went on. You know what I mean? Like, so does the coaching staff. Like, it's hard to be the owner and go, you know what, guys, you you just didn't do a good job this year. Obviously, they did. So he's going to get a longer leash now. So how does he use that? Does he go, you know, I've got Carey Price and I've got Shea Weber making a lot of money. They're getting older. I need to really act now. I need to be proactive and aggressive in this window that I have, which is really coming down to like two or three years. If we're talking about how useful a Carey Price and Shea Weber are going to be. So there's, there's that perspective, but there's also maybe a perspective of just thinking a little longer term, five years or so and trying to map out, okay, which year will be our year and making maybe a couple of moves that take you a little, you know, back yep. a little, you know, just taking um, a little away from your team so you can gain it later. Um, or there's sort of a, a way of, of running it back and not changing much of, of the team. I don't know if I would recommend that, but I also feel like sometimes GMs get a little crazy in the summers and it, it tends to backfire. So we'll see. Bergerman's, yeah, he's in a really interesting spot. And, you know. Well, he's in a bit of a bind too, uh, John. Yeah. I'll tell you why. For one reason. In, the, through this year, there was talk that Carey Price might be on the trading block at times. Now, who knows if that was true or not? Uh, because you could get rid of a huge salary and plug other holes. And and Jake Allen was pretty good when he filled in as a backup. In these playoffs, it became abundantly clear. They don't get past the Leafs if not for Carey Price. He's the one guy who is absolutely untouchable, untradeable if you're the Canadians, if you want any hope in the future. And so the one guy that might actually help you fix some of your holes is the guy you can't touch. Yeah, and a guy making ten point five million. I can't remember a lot how of money. his deal is, but it, it's certainly not coming up over the next season or two. So you're kind of stuck with him. Um, yep. And it's not the worst thing in the world. It's not like Carey Price <laughs> no. uh, is Martin Jones out of San, San Jose, who just has you know, <laughs> the league worst numbers every year, and he somehow makes a really good uh, paycheck. Like Carey Price, the problem with him lately over the last whatever three or four years has been like he's been so ordinary in the regular season, and that hasn't it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. That hasn't helped them get into the playoffs. Like 
that you're missing step one before step two. And we saw step two this year where he's in the playoffs and he's lights out. He's back to his sort of heart trophy, Vesna trophy caliber of play. And, and one, I guess, reason for optimism with that in mind is that the Habs really showed that they could play a certain brand of defensive hockey where their really big defensemen are keeping players to the outside. Because when you do that and you have Carey Price, who's arguably the most technically sound goalie in, in the world, you know, he, you know, he doesn't give up rebounds. He's always square to the shot. All that kind of stuff they teach in goalie school. He's unflappable. Like once, once you're only getting poor shots or low quality shots on Carey Price, like good luck, especially if you're you, done. Yeah, you're you know, done. And John, so. we saw that here. Anyone in Hamilton who back in 2007 watched Carey Price win the Calder Cup for the Hamilton Bulldogs, <laughs> that was the exact formula they used. It was exactly the same. It was like watching a rerun. Uh, a big defense, keep everything to the outside and let Carey Price just do all the rest. Uh, okay, we only have a few seconds. I got to ask you about this. Watching the finals and having seen a lot of Maple Leafs this year, uh, honestly, I, as I was watching that, I was thinking, I see not very much in the Maple Leaf style of play that made me believe they could have played that style and competed with Tampa. They just did not look like that was what they would be all about if they had been in that position. Sure, yeah. The, the thing with the Leafs is that they they presumably are going to continue to bet on skill and bet on, you know, talent versus maybe, I don't know, whatever else you want to call it, toughness, grit, all that. And, uh, like, I I try to lean towards that because it makes more logical sense. But then you see what teams do again and again in the playoffs, and you're like, well, maybe there is something to this intangible stuff, like a Corey Perry and what he was able to do, or on Tampa, you know, you go up and down their, their roster, their third line, their third pairing defense, like, they have a lot of players that are pitching in at a low grade or a low paycheck. And it's like, yeah, the Leafs could use that too. I realize their stars didn't show up uh, in the first round against Montreal, but like, did anyone else step up? I don't know. So yeah, I wouldn't say I watched the cup final and went, Oh, the Leafs have this figured out next year. They got it. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't great for them. John Matisse from the score national hockey writer. Really appreciate you taking some time today, John. Thanks for doing this on a, at the end of a very busy stretch. Thanks for the time. No, no worries, Scott. No, thanks for having me on. Have a good one. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.